I want to talk about pots today. Pots. And there's an interesting metaphor that is used in a number of places in the Bible, particularly in the prophet Isaiah and also in the prophet Jeremiah, that likens God to the potter and we are pots. And there's a lot to that metaphor that goes all the way back to Genesis 1, because the Bible actually says that God fashioned you and me out of clay. We really are called clay pots. And God is the potter, and we are the pots. And I think we're going to learn today that when a potter makes a pot, he has a design, he has a plan, and he already has a use and a purpose for that pot in mind, even before he begins. And to begin, I want to look at a couple of these verses in Isaiah, and then we're going to see where the Apostle Paul quotes them in the New Testament and refers it to you and to me. Let's begin in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Isaiah 64, verse 8. And hopefully we'll see them up on the screen here. There we go. Uh, If you don't mind, can we change it to NIV? I don't know how Jesus did all this on the hills of Galilee, but somehow he made it without projectors and computers. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. How many of you ever have seen a potter working a wheel? It's quite fascinating to see. And as that lump of clay is spinning around, the potter very skillfully applies pressure at certain places and for certain amounts of time to begin to shape that lump of clay as it's turning on the wheel. We're not going to look there, but in Jeremiah 18, you might want to read later how God told the prophet Jeremiah to go down to the prophet to the potter's house. And he wanted to show him something. And he went down to the potter's house, watched the potter turning the wheel and working the clay. And then again, God began to speak to Jeremiah this same metaphor that clay is my people. I am the potter. But in several other places in Isaiah, God exposes a very common human problem. And to do that, I'm going to read first of all in the book of Romans where Paul quotes these verses, and then we're going to go back and actually look at the texts in Isaiah again. Let's go firstly to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 20 to 23. Romans 9, 20 to 23. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy 
whom he prepared in advance for glory. Now, Pastor Quasey's an artist. He paints. Maybe some others in here have delved into the art world. About the only painting I do is walls and ceilings. That's as far as my artistic talent goes. But can you imagine, after spending months on a painting, you hang it on the wall and the painting begins to talk to you and say, I don't like what you did. Does the painting have any right to do that? Let's just assume paintings can talk for a minute. Does the painting have any right to talk back to its artist? No, why? Because the whole idea, the whole project was birthed in the mind of the artist. He bought the canvas, the paints, the brushes. He put all the time into it and the painting has no right to say anything. And that's basically what God is trying to say in these verses. He's the potter. We are the clay. He's the artist with the mind, with the design, with the plan and the purpose in mind. And clay just doesn't talk back to the potter. I did a little thing with uh, kids in school this past year. I brought in a number of different pots. A little pot, a great big pot, a beautifully colored pot, and then just a plain old regular pot. And the kids had a blast because these were talking pots. And each pot had a name and there was Tiny Tim and I forget what I named them all. But they were all saying things that we're going to read about in these next two verses where God confronts us with the same thing. We the pots talk back to God. And that's how this passage began in verse 20. Who are we to talk back to God, okay? Stay with me now. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. And we're going to look at one other verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 16. Three different places in Isaiah you find this theme of potter and clay. Pot and potter. God is speaking here to the people. And he says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, listen to this carefully, he did not make me. Can you imagine Pastor Quasey's painting hanging there on the wall? Every time Pastor walks by the painting, the painting says, you didn't make me. You didn't paint me. You had nothing to do with making me. Well, the implication, I guess, is I made myself. What arrogance and what ignorance for a pot to dare tell its potter, he did not make me. And it gets worse. Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? Keep those two phrases in mind. We're going to come back to them. He did not make me and he knows nothing. Nothing. But now let's go to another portion that Paul quotes there in Romans 9, and it's a little different in the original text. Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 10. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Anybody here ever argued with God? Oh, only me. My hand is up. I have argued with God. I have quarreled with him. Woe to him who does it, who quarrels with his maker. 
To him who is but a potsherd, just a broken piece of pottery, among the potsherds on the ground. And here it comes. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Next verse. Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? Now, these are some serious charges that God is making to you and me. And let's examine these briefly just to see if this ever happens in our human experience. And I'm going to boil this down to two basic errors that are often made in our thinking and in our view of life. The first one is very, very common in the world and in our culture today. It is very simply, you didn't make me. Evolution is the state religion, not only in America, but in many other nations now. Evolution is the religion of the state. It is taught as science, but make no mistake, it is not science. It is what Peter refers to, or Paul, I forget which one, science falsely called. It's false science. What it really is, is a faith and a religion of atheism. You don't exist. You didn't make me. I made myself. I came about through millions and billions of years of random processes, and I don't need God to explain how I came into being. That's the first error that God is putting his finger on here, and it's very, very powerful and very prevalent in our world today. And if you have children that go to government public schools, beware. They are being fed this day and night from the first day of school till the day they are receiving their diploma. They'll get a double dose of it when they go to college, a triple dose if they dare go to graduate school, and if they ever become a professor, they'll probably be another teacher of evolution. Because the whole system is now designed to exalt this religion of atheism and evolution. No God, we just came from slime and molecules and billions of years of random chance. And most people don't ever stop to think about the consequences of that whole belief system. But believe you me, we are reaping what has been sown for many, many years now. The end conclusion is life has no meaning. Life is just a bunch of random chance and chaos. My life really has no purpose. I may do some great things in my 70 or 80 years on the earth. After I die, I go back to dust. I have no more life. I have no more purpose, no more reason for existing. And in the end, it's all vanity of vanities. No wonder there are so many young people committing suicide throughout the world today. No wonder so many people are just consumed with self-destructive habits and addictions because they see no reason for their life. They see no purpose for life. So that's one major error we're going to come back and look at. You didn't make me. There's a second one that is brought out several times in these passages that we read. It's basically... Why did you make me the way you did? 
implying that God made a mistake, or I could somehow be better off if you hadn't made me the way you did. And again, that's the epitome of arrogance for the pot to talk back to the potter and say, I could have done a better job than you did. Why did you make me like this? What are you making? God doesn't know what he's doing. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but perhaps at some point in your human experience, you've had similar questions. I don't like the way God made me. I wish I had more hair. I wish I was skinnier. I wish I was taller. I wish I was darker. I wish I was lighter. I wish I lived in a different country. And on and on and on and on it goes. Most people, if you really sit down and talk to them, they're not content or happy with who they are. They want to be something else. They want to be somewhere else. They want to be doing something else. They're not content with what God planned for their life. Now, let's take this first error. You didn't make me. Hmm. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. As you know, I love to debate evolution. And by the way, we have purchased the DVD, God's Not Dead, and we're going to have a movie pizza night early September. The date is to be determined, but it's an excellent, excellent film. If you haven't seen it, you must see it. If you have, you need to see it again. And it's on this very thing, how in a college class, the professor is an atheist, he's a God-hater, and it's very, very similar to what goes on in most college campuses today. There's just no room even for discussion about a God of creation versus the God of evolution. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, I just want to talk a little bit about us as human beings. Is it possible that we could be so arrogant as to say, as they were in Isaiah's day, you didn't make me. I'm a product of millions of years of random chance, molecules coming together on their own, and voila, here I am today. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Earlier in this same psalm, as David is pondering the greatness of God, his grand design and wisdom in creation, he, he actually says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is beyond what our minds can even take in. But let me give you just a few facts about the human body, just to kind of pique your interest and maybe open your mind a little bit more to what David was referring to when he said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he didn't know a lot of the medical things that we now know about. Let me just give you a few examples. Your body consists of 100 
trillion cells. Okay? 100 trillion cells. That's a lot. And they all came from one cell. Everyone in this room started out this thing the same way. One single cell. And it divided into two, and into four, and into eight, and into 16, and eventually you became you. And now your body is made up of about 100 trillion cells. The amazing thing that scientists still cannot fully explain or understand is how you start with that one cell, and as it develops, certain parts of it become an ear, other parts become an eye, other parts become kidney cells, other parts become bones. Because remember, they all started with one single cell. And yet it undergoes what biologists call differentiation. And it's like a, a symphony being conducted by the conductor. Okay, you become an eye. Okay, you become an ear. Okay, you become a spinal cord. Nobody understands how this whole orchestration takes place. But in the end, you have a hundred trillion cells that have differentiated into the most complex array of compartments, girders, factories, motors, pumps, sensors, and control systems known to man. Man has not been able to invent anything that comes close to the things that are in your human body. They have never been able to invent a pump like the human heart. Never. Most of you, now you're going to get a little biology here this morning. Most of you have probably heard about DNA. Raise your hand if you've heard of DNA. You don't have to remember the the long form, but it's deoxyribonucleic acid. And it's a molecule inside every one of your cells. And you may have seen pictures. It's like a spiral staircase called a double helix. And there are chemicals arranged in certain orders along that long chain that are actually like computer code. It's very well documented now that there's information in that long DNA molecule. Now, in your body, remember there are a hundred trillion individual cells. Cell is the smallest unit of life. If you take one cell and extract all the DNA from the nucleus of that one cell, and if you were to stretch it out, it would be seven feet long. Just the DNA in one cell. Seven feet of DNA and it's so thin, you wouldn't even be able to see it with an electron microscope, which can magnify up to 200,000 times. The amount of information, now follow me here, I know this is a little different what you're used to on Sunday sermons, but the amount of information in the DNA in one single cell is the equivalent of the information contained in a library of 4,000 books. One cell... One strand of DNA, information, and anybody that knows anything about science and math and logic knows information doesn't come randomly. Information comes from intelligence. So when you have 4,000 books worth of information, if you were out hiking in the desert and you found a pile of 4,000 books, would you dare presume that they just wrote themselves? They just landed there and randomly 4,000 books 
got created. They didn't need an author. They didn't need intelligence. They didn't need somebody to write them. They just happened. It's foolishness, absolute foolishness to believe that such information can come randomly. It gets better though. If you took all of the DNA from your 100 trillion cells and stretched it out end to end, remember one cell gives you about seven feet worth, the total DNA in your body would stretch 60 billion miles. You have 60 billion miles of DNA in your body. That's the distance from the earth to the moon 500,000 times. 500,000 times from here to the moon. Now, everybody knows what a gigabyte is, right? That's a household word now. You hear about it in all the iPhone and smartphone ads. How many gigs of data? Okay, well, the amount of data in the DNA in your body, are you ready for this? Is equal to 70 trillion gigabytes. 70 trillion gigabytes of information that we're told in the colleges and the high school and the elementary school classrooms across this country, we're told that all that happened by random chance. How many of you have ever seen a software computer program that wrote itself? More and more what we call phones, they're really not even used as phones anymore, they're computers. Everybody's carrying a computer around with them. And there's all kinds of software, all kinds of programming. Somebody with a mind, somebody with an intelligence sat down and wrote the code so that your phone will do all the wonderful things that it does. Information comes from intelligence. This is a whole lot of information. 70 trillion gigabytes of information. If you were to take all of that information and again, put it in book form, it would fill the Grand Canyon 75 times. 75 times you would be able to fill the Grand Canyon with all of the books of information that are contained inside your body. If you were to take one of those strands of DNA from one cell, remember that's seven feet long, if you were to take one sample of DNA from one cell from every human being who has ever lived on the earth and you put it all in one pile, it would weigh less than an aspirin. <laughs> you know, I've watched since computers began in, at least in everyday life in the 80s, computers have gotten smaller. The storage devices have gotten smaller and they can hold more and more. But can you imagine having a little USB drive the size of an aspirin that can hold 70 trillion gigabytes? That's what your body does. The heart, it pumps 100,000 times a day and your body contains about 60,000 miles of blood vessels. 60,000 miles. And remember, all this came from one cell. And that's about... Let's see, 700,000 gallons of blood that your heart pumps each year. And if you live to be 70, on average, your heart will have pumped, are you ready for this one? 48 million gallons of blood. One pump. In most cases, it never needed any servicing. 
It just runs on its own and it pumps and it pumps and it pumps and it never gets tired. Amazing. Every second, your body is producing 2.4 million new red blood cells. Every second. More than 2 million new cells. 2.4 million, 2.4 million, 2.4 million. I don't know about you, but it's beyond my ability to comprehend how fearfully and wonderfully we are made. And I'm just scratching the surface. The lungs. Take a deep breath. Make sure you're still alive here. There we go. Your lungs contain 600 million little gas exchange chambers. They're called alveoli. 600 million of them. And if you were to spread them out, the total surface area inside your two lungs is equal to one entire volleyball court. What a design! What a design to maximize the amount of surface area so that your body can get rid of carbon dioxide, take in brand new oxygen every time you breathe. It's mind-boggling. And then there's the brain. It's a three-pound, 10-watt supercomputer that contains more than 100 quadrillion electrochemical connections. 100 quadrillion. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And we're going to dare stand before our Maker and say, you know nothing. You didn't make me. As for me and my house, I have now chosen for many years to start each day Father, I praise you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are my maker. You designed me in a way that I can't even begin to comprehend. Romans 1 is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. If we could read from verse 19 to 22, basically to all of the evolutionists and atheists and pots that would dare speak back to the potter and say, you didn't make me. Paul has one simple answer to all of them. You're without excuse. You're without excuse. Romans 1 from verse 19 to 22. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. In the context, it's plain to everybody. Because God has made it plain to them. Hmm. How did he do that? Verse 20. Ah, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Say clearly seen with me. Clearly seen. Being understood from what? From what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. We're without excuse. Mankind is without excuse. There is no man, woman, child on this planet that can claim well, I, I never saw anything or nobody ever told me about God. No, God says I've already made it plain to you. Clear for everyone to see. Look up at the night sky. Look under a microscope. Consider some of the things we've just talked about in your own body. And you are without excuse. God is our 
potter. He is our maker. Just as it says in Genesis, he took some clay and he fashioned it and he made man and he made you and he made me. But I want to move on to this second error, which is basically, okay, God, you made me. I'll give you that much. You're my maker, you're my potter, but you made a mistake. You didn't make me right. Or why did you make me the way you did? How many young people I talk to, they want to be like somebody else. They're not happy with who they are. They want to be Johnny or they want to be Susie or they want to be somebody that they've seen somewhere. They're not happy with who they are and they often go through a large part of their life discontented, depressed, and even suicidal because they're not the way they want to be. It's a very common problem in the world today. You know, in the earth, there are over 7 billion people right now. 7 billion. Did you know that there are no two people on the face of this earth that are the same? What does that tell you about God? He could have cloned us. He could have made us all alike, or he could have had three different models. And you could choose model A, model B, model C. But God is a God who loves diversity. He likes variety. He doesn't want you to be like anybody else. That's why every human being, not only who is on the earth today, but who has ever walked this planet, they have a unique set of fingerprints. You know, my mom was an identical twin. If you know anything about identical twins, they originate from that one cell. Same DNA in that one cell, but by a quirk of nature that happens sometimes. Not a quirk, it's really God. But somehow that egg divides into two, and you have identical twins. But guess what? My mom and her twin sister had different fingerprints. And I have searched this thing out. I have found no good explanation from a genetic or a scientific or biological point of view how in the world they started off from the same cell, the same DNA, and they ended up with two different sets of fingerprints. That's God. God has seen to it that every individual is unique. My mom's twin, when she was young, she moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And then later in her life, she moved back here to Maryland. So she had a southern accent. And you could tell them apart immediately when they talked. But when our daughter Sharon was little, it was a bit confusing for her. But she knew right away that there was something different between her aunt and her grandmother. So she adopted an interesting title for the aunt. That's other grandma. There's grandma and other grandma. Well... God has seen to it that there's no one who has ever lived on the earth today or who will ever live that's going to be exactly like you. Just tell yourself right now, I'm unique. I'm unique. There's no one like me. Maybe you're not so happy about that, but I want to help you today. We talked some time ago about what's in outer space. Anybody remember how many stars there are? One septillion stars. That's a one with 24 zeros after it. And they're found in about 170 billion different galaxies. And out of those one septillion stars, no two of them are alike. And God has given every one of them a name. 
And I've challenged you before, try to come up with a septillion different names. God did. He's named every one of them. And the Bible says not one of them is missing. He can recognize every one of the septillion different stars that he made. Some are red, some are blue, some are white, some black holes, all kinds of different stars. God likes variety. And we talked about snowflakes. They estimate the same number of snowflakes fall to the earth every year. One septillion snowflakes. How many of them are alike? No two alike. God likes different things. He likes variety. We need to stop wanting to be like the Joneses. God made you the Smiths. Be the Smiths. I'm going to rattle off some things real fast here. God made over 400,000 different species of flowering plants. I mean, he could have made one yellow daisy and we would all have been happy. But he likes variety. So he made 400,000 different ones. By the way, about 26,000 of them are orchids alone. There are 1 million known insects on the earth. You're probably uh, wishing there were a little less than a million. And scientists actually estimate there may be as many as 8 million. 7 million they just haven't found, cataloged, or named yet. There are birds that swim like fish. And there are fish that fly like birds. There's a furry mammal in Australia that lays eggs, has a bill like a duck called the duck-billed platypus. And there are some fish that look like miniature horses. I don't know about you, but I think God had a blast when he was creating things. He just wanted to mix it up and make a fish that looked like a horse make a bird that looks like a fish, make a fish that looks like a bird, and throw them all out there just to dazzle everyone with his creative ability. We are not accidents. You are not an accident. Coming back to the metaphor of the potter, when the potter puts a lump of clay on the wheel, he has a mind, he has a plan, he has an idea of what he wants to make and the purpose for which he's making it. Now I have a couple of pictures I want to put up if we have that. Some of you may be familiar with this young man when you see his face. Nice looking guy, right? Next picture will tell you his name. It's Nick Vujicic. He's actually an Australian, and he's preached in over, I, I forget, I think I wrote it down somewhere here. He's preached in over 45 nations, untold millions this man has brought to Christ. He has a slight limitation, as you'll see in the next picture. He was born with no arms and no legs. I wonder what you and I would have done if we had such limitations. He refused to be limited. He just has refused to let the way he was made limit him from fulfilling his purpose and his destiny. This, by the way, is in one of his crusades where he's preaching to multiplied thousands of people in a huge stadium. Keep going. I like this. God won't allow anything to happen in your life if it's not for your good. Would you be saying that? If you were in his shoes, of course, he doesn't have any. That, my friend, is the right attitude. That is an overcomer. That is the kind of person God likes to use, where they will not, cannot be limited in any way. 
Keep going. That's him preaching. They, they literally just set him up on a table and he preaches. Keep going. How many of you saw the movie Soul Surfer? This, it's a true story about a surfer, Beth Hamilton, who lost an arm to a shark attack. Well, this is her surfing with Nick on the surfboard. He wanted to go surfing, so she took him out surfing. He's gone scuba diving, and I don't know what else. He's probably gone skydiving. I don't know what this guy does. He's crazy. He's just not going to let physical things limit him from doing all that God has given him to do. Keep going. Huge crusades he speaks at. I forget where this one was, in South America somewhere. Matter of fact, one of my students, his father is a Spanish pastor, and he's actually translated for Nick in some of these crusades. Keep going. Step out in faith. <laughs> Think about Nick the next time you're a little down in the dumps, feeling a little bit, woe is me. Why, why did God make me the way he made me? I wish I were taller, stronger. You know, it's so funny. People with curly hair, they don't like curly hair. What do they do? They get it straightened. People with straight hair, they don't like it. What do they do? They go get it curled. People with real light skin, what do they do? They don't like to be light. They want to be darker. So they go to tanning salons. People with dark skin that want to be lighter, they got another version for them where they can lighten their skin. It's crazy. By the way, let me just throw in a little side note here. We hear a lot about in the media now about this black-white racial divide in America. First of all, there's no such thing as a black person or a white person. Did you know that? Some of you are looking at me like, where did they get this guy? Again, from a biological standpoint, every one of us is brown. Every one of us has a varying amount of pigment in our skin called melanin. Some have a little bit more, some have a little bit less. But none of us are black and none of us are white. We're all different shades of brown. So that's my take on the racial divide. It's all a bunch of foolishness. My my wife tells me that I'm pigment challenged. Praise the Lord. Whatever. She's got a little bit more than I do. Quasi's got a little bit more than she does. But we're all just different degrees of brown. Now, by the way, I hope none of you, well, probably wouldn't apply here, but um, they have found a lot of these kids that have gone to these tanning salons are now turning up with skin cancer. It's very dangerous, actually. So don't do that. Okay, I'm about to finish here. Most of the people that God used in the Bible, listen to me carefully here. Most of the people that God used in the Bible, they had some kind of limitation. Many of them had what we would even call a handicap. I'll give you a few examples. Moses had a completely dysfunctional childhood, and when he was grown up, he couldn't speak. And God chose him to be the leader of Israel. Abraham was called to be the father of nations. He was too old and he couldn't even have kids. You talk about limitations. Peter didn't have a college education, but he had a good temper. Thomas was a doubter. Zacchaeus was too short. And Lazarus was dead. And God used every one of them. What's your excuse? Oh, I'm too old. I'm too young. 
I'm too short. I'm too tall. I don't have enough education. I don't speak well. I don't look good. I don't like my hair. I don't like my skin color. Go on and on and on and on and on. And every time you come to the end of your list, think about our friend Nick. How many of us are sitting on our hands and here's a man that's gone to 45 nations with the gospel and he has no hands. And it didn't stop him. It didn't limit him. Very often, remember our metaphor of a potter and a pot. The potter knows what he's doing. Contrary to what the people were saying in Isaiah's time, he doesn't know anything. Believe you me, God doesn't make mistakes. Tell your neighbor that. God doesn't make mistakes. What's that song we, we like to sing? He is with us. He is with us. He knows what he's doing. We can trust our God. He knows what he's doing. What does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? God's not sure about his plans. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do with your life. I haven't, I haven't quite got it all worked out yet. No, I love it in Spanish. It says, yo sé muy bien. I know very well the plans that I have for you. Don't even for a moment think God has made any mistakes with you. He has a plan. He knows what he wants to do. If you will just get out of the way, surrender to him, and allow him to use you the way he wants to. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul presents another interesting metaphor about the church. And it kind of ties back into what we started off with, talking about the amazing human body. He says the church is a body. And in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm just going to pick out a couple of these verses very quickly, and we are about to end here. 1 Corinthians 12, let's look at verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Are we all going to be the same? Even in this small church, are we all going to be the same? No way. We're not going to talk the same. We're not going to minister the same. We're all going to have different views, different burdens, different ways in which we want to glorify God and serve God. And the danger is sometimes we can say, well, my way is right and every other way is wrong. Rather than embracing diversity the way God loves diversity, and he's deliberately put all different kinds of people together in the church to become one body, each with a different purpose, function, expression, and on and on it goes. Different gifts, different kinds of working, different kinds of ministries, but one God uniting it all together. And then he goes on and talks about this body. And we don't have time to read all the verses, but I wrote it down here. He talks about many different parts, feet, hands, ears, eyes, and head. But then if you'll jump down to verse 18, after he lists all these different parts of the body, here's what he has to say. In fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as they wanted it to be. Right? Just as he wanted them to be. God arranged the parts. The potter formed each pot 
with a specific purpose and function so that they can all work together and give this manifold revelation of God's grace and glory to the world around them, just as he wanted them to be. By the way, I forgot to mention, I brought uh, this book with me by Nick Vujicic. It's called Life Without Limits. But the name of his ministry is Life Without Limbs. <laughs> Life Without Limbs. Fascinating story. Fascinating. All right, let's tie this up. God is the potter. We are the pot. Does he know what he's doing? Are we going to trust that he knows what he's doing? Or are we going to fall into this trap of, I don't think you know what you're doing. I think you, when you got around to me, Maybe you were running out of some materials and you made a mistake. I, I want you to really get this deep into your spirit. And it may take longer than an hour here on Sunday. But I want you to really begin to pray over this and uh, look at some of these scriptures until you can look yourself in the mirror and say, God, I praise you. You made me exactly the way you did. I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I praise you. For every one of those hundred trillion cells that you fashioned. And you have a purpose for my life. And I'm surrendering to you so that that purpose can be fulfilled. All right, here we go. 2 Timothy 2, our last verse. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21. Paul here is still talking about pots. Vessels is the word some of the translations use, but it's actually the same word, a pot. In a large house... There are articles or vessels, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument. That's that word vessel, pot, sometimes translated jar. He will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Why did the master make the pot? It's for his use, is it not? And our desire now should be, I want to be useful to the master. I want to be a vessel of honor, prepared to do useful good works for my father, for my potter, and for my master. In another place, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's all we are, just clay pots. The emphasis is not on the clay, it's on the treasure within. The treasure within is Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Pots are very fragile. I work with clay pots a lot, and you drop one, forget it. They get cracked, they split easily, they fall apart. They're very weak, very fragile things, and yet... God made us pots so that the emphasis would not be on the pot, but what's inside Christ in you. We need to spend more time praising God for the way he designed us, the way he made us and stop blaming and complaining and arguing and wishing I was somebody else. And oh, if, 
if I hadn't been born into this family and if I hadn't gone through all of this, my life would have been different. You need to dispense with all of that and come to a place of surrender where you embrace God has a plan for my life. And everything from the day I was born until this day, it was decreed by God for a purpose. Now let me find out what that purpose is. Let me discover how the master wants to use me as an instrument for good work. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you today for your word. You are the potter. We are merely clay. How often in our arrogance we have thought that somehow we were responsible for our lives, that somehow we can take credit for what we've made of ourselves. What folly in the eyes of a great holy God who has designed each one of us with a purpose. You deliberately made each one of us unique and different to reflect a different hue of light from the rainbow of colors that represents your glory. God, I pray for each one here, even those that may listen to this message on the internet, that they would come to a place of understanding and surrender to embrace the fact that you have designed them with a purpose. And God, regardless of our so-called limitations, handicaps, Lord, even those you have designed with a purpose. And God, really there are no limitations because you can use each one of us to the fullest extent for which you have designed us. You are the master potter, we are the pots, we are the vessels, we are the clay. And God, we surrender to that purpose and plan today, and our desire is to be instruments of righteousness, instruments that you can use to accomplish your purposes. Take each one of our lives, O God, fill these pots with the treasure of your glory, of your knowledge, of the very person of Jesus Christ. Lord, that the emphasis would not be on the pot, but on the treasure within. Bless each and every one now, O God. We give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.